0: Join we join with me in prayer as we begin. Dear Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and your grace toward us of salvation and for providing for us during this time, uh, during our trials, and sanctification that you have provided for us with your word and also with your sacraments. We pray that you would bless this time of instruction, that we would understand and make right use of the means you have appointed for our strength, for our growth, for our nourishment and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to continue with the chapter on the Lord's Supper. Uh, chapter 29, and if you're looking in the hymnal, that's page 865. Last time we looked at how Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, uh, some of the main ends that he had in mind in in appointing this supper, Uh, the fact that there's no sacrifice being made to God for sins, in this supper, but rather it's commemorating the one offering of himself by himself to God on the cross, um, looked at the actual ceremony or ritual itself, the, uh, the praying, the blessing, the breaking, the taking, the eating, the drinking, uh, the, the sacramental actions, that it's not just the elements, but it's also the uh, giving and receiving of the bread and wine, uh, to those who are in the congregation, and then we looked at in the the fourth article uh, the some of the abuses the misuses of the Lord's Supper that had accumulated over time uh, that the Reformation dealt with or, or tried to deal with, uh, being contrary to the nature of the sacrament and the institution of Christ, such as receiving it by yourself, denying the cup to the people, worshiping the elements things. Such as those. Now, as we go on to the rest of this chapter, we're going to address some more errors that uh, led to some of these abuses. When you start thinking of the Lord's Supper in a wrong way, uh, that will affect the way you treat it. And because they began to think of the Lord's Supper in a wrong way, they began to. Depart from the use that Christ appointed and applied it to other uses. You know, like putting it in a in a cross and parading it around town and 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 bowing down before it, and uh, rather than just you know taking it and eating it like Christ said we should. Um, so this time we're going to look at uh, the the presence of Christ in the supper, the the feeding upon Christ in the supper, and while the first half. Uh, The the main error being addressed was that of the Lord's Supper not not being a sacrifice for sins. The other main Roman Catholic error was that of transubstantiation, the idea that the substance of the bread and wine turned into his body and blood so that it was no longer bread and wine. Uh, And so that's going to be more of the focus in this section. So first of all, let's start with Article 5 or Paragraph 5 on sacramental union, which we already looked at in the chapter on sacraments in general, but it's worth revisiting here. Basically, why bread and wine can be called his body and blood. (laughs) The outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent. To wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So in the Lord's Supper, Christ says, this is my body. And of course that led to great disputes. What does that mean? And here it's explaining that uh, the bread and wine can be called and is in scripture called at times the body and blood of Christ because, not because of a transformation of the substance of those things, which was the Roman Catholic explanation, but rather because of the sacramental union that Christ had appointed between the sign and the thing signified. <coughs> there is a relation between the sign and the thing signified. It's a true, it's a real uh, union, but it's a sacramental union, not. Um, a a merging of the two into one thing. Um, The uh, way of speaking that was real common to reformers, it's a good reminder, is that these are not bare and naked and empty signs, uh, but that uh, Christ gives truly what they symbolize. Um, I've used the analogy before of, you know, the real estate agent who hands you the keys to the house and says, here's the house. Does that mean the key has been transubstantiated into the house no no but it does have real significance that that they're giving you the house and giving you the keys now maybe if you're a fraud and you're not the person it belongs to you know they're gonna that's that doesn't work that way um but it could be a key it could be anything but it's it's a symbol it's a sign but what it symbolizes is really being given to you uh, but it doesn't mean that the sign becomes the thing signified it's a sacramental symbolic language in calling it the thing that it symbolizes, just as circumcision is called the covenant, um, just as the rock was Christ uh, in, in, in the desert in 1 Corinthians 10. In fact, we can look in Scripture at how he says, yes, this is my body, um, this cup is the new covenant. Well, even there we're realizing there's some figures of speech, right, because it's not the cup that's being Transubstantiated, even in Roman Catholic understandings, the wine in the cup. But uh, that's when it says, "This cup is the new this. This cup is my blood, or this this bread is is my body." It goes on to speak of these things still as bread and wine. In Matthew 26, for example, he says these things, but then. In verse 29, he says, "You, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So even after he's spoken the words of consecration, if you will, he still calls it the fruit of the vine, that it's still wine, even after that has taken place. Uh, we find similar in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, after Paul recounts, you know, this is my body. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he goes on to say, "Bread and wine, bread and wine, bread and bread and cup, uh, again and again, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, and so it's still bread. It's it's still uh, wine that is there. The the nature has not been changed. Well, and that flows well right into the next article the next paragraph in the westminster confession of faith after in article 5 explaining why we can call this body and blood without saying that the nature and substance is anything other than bread and wine uh, we reject the opposite we reject the the contrary air transubstantiation and so let's look at that in article 6 that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthroweth the nature of the sacrament, and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries." So here, briefly describing the Roman Catholic doctrine, the idea that the the substance of bread and wine turn into the substance of his body and blood by the consecration of a priest, It's, uh, it's wrong, and it's wrong in many different ways. It is repugnant to Scripture. For example, it's simply unwarranted by Scripture. Scripture does not teach this. It does not say the substance of this bread has turned into my body uh, or something of that sort. In fact, it teaches that Christ's body is still a physical human body. It has its own uh, qualities. It is visible and tangible. They were able to touch it. It looked like a body. It felt like a body. It didn't feel like bread. Uh, That it is not only a physical human body, but it's in heaven. And the heavens must receive him until it's time for him to return. Um, And this is not the way Scripture uses sacramental language when it says Christ was the rock in the wilderness, it doesn't mean the rock, you know, transubstantiated into Christ. Um, Likewise, Scripture uses interchangeably the phrase, This is my blood of the covenant, the cup is the blood of my my blood of the covenant and the new covenant in my blood. can use this interchangeably that it is it his blood or is it the new covenant in his blood Um, another sign that we're speaking here as a sign and seal of the covenant um, and not a, a transformation of its substance it's also contrary to common sense and reason so it's just philosophically confused they would use the distinction of substance and accidents substance being like the essence of a thing if you change it you change the thing itself and accidental properties things that can change without making it not bread for example you can have bread that's big you can have bread that's little you can have bread that's smelly you can have bread that smells good those are accidental properties they don't change the substance but they would say the accidents remain but the substance changes but that's not the way those distinctions were intended to to work um It's contrary to common sense and reason that the accidental properties of bread and wine remain while their substance has been transformed into flesh and blood. Plus, Christ was sitting in front of them when he said these words. His body was was right there in front of them. It also overthrows the nature of a sacrament. It turns the thing into the thing, it turns the sign into the thing signified so that you no longer have a visible sign of invisible grace or something of that sort, but you now just have the thing signified. Uh, You don't have uh, the nature of a sacrament. And then it's the cause of many superstitions and great idolatries. It's led many to put it to uses that were not prescribed by Christ, which not only is a sign of how this is a significant error, but it also should make us rethink about whether we've understood the Lord's Supper correctly. If if this particular understanding of the Lord's Supper makes us think that we should do all these other things with it, then maybe we've misunderstood what it is itself, you know, and that's, that's often what the Reformers did. Like, wait a minute, Christ didn't tell us to do all these other things with the Lord's Supper. Maybe we should go back to properly understanding it itself. Any questions there on these first two articles? sure i mean gross is probably referring to there to, to great you know that idea but yes we might we we might think of it in the terms of gross as being repugnant too you know that that's uh this is repulsive yeah it is a stru- sh- vivid language uh let's look at article 7 then so that's what we reject but we also want to affirm you know what's true and um not let the heirs out there distract us from the true treasure that we have been given uh, that we want to receive. So let's look at article 7. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally or corporally or carnally in with or under the bread and wine yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. that is a mouthful lots of qualifications and descriptions here a lot of adverbs but very important. Um, It's affirming the truth, but it's also distinguishing itself from the Lutheran understanding of the Lord's Supper as well. Now, the Lutheran understanding would not be anywhere near as bad as the Roman Catholic understanding. It's not being described as, in harsh terms as the previous article was, but it's still distinguishing it as an error. Um, Both Lutheran and at least most Reformed uh, would would affirm that Christ is present in the supper, that we do feed upon Christ in the sacrament, but the manner of how is he present, how do we partake, upon, uh, partake of him, would be different, uh, that there would be different understandings of that. Let's try to break this down a little bit. Uh, first of all, the, the elements are not empty signs. Christ truly holds forth his body and blood to believers in the sacrament, that they might partake of it, but the manner of partaking is spiritual. While Christ is truly offered to believers in the sacrament, uh, he's truly offered in the sacrament, none but worthy receivers feed upon Christ in it. Notice that's the first words in this article. It's those who receive it in a worthy manner, that do partake and feed upon Christ in this sacrament. Uh, Christ must be received by faith. They feed upon Christ inwardly by faith, um, just as they receive the elements in their mouth, uh, that uh, they do not uh, feed upon Christ with their mouth, but they do feed upon Christ inwardly by faith. Those who receive this sacrament in a worthy manner do receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. This sacrament is, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It is a communion in the body and blood of, of Christ that is being symbolized, but the reality also is being realized by those who partake of it in a worthy manner. That's why we call it sometimes communion. This participation or this communion is real and true, really and indeed. It's not imaginary. It's not figurative. Like it's it's real. It's true, but it's not carnal and corporeal. Uh, it's not uh, physical, but it's spiritual. Christ's body and blood are physical. All right, we are talking about a physical body and blood that Christ has, but they are food in a spiritual way at least in, in, in multiple ways. First of all, they are not food for this mortal life. You eat several times a day so that you can continue to live uh, sustaining your bodily life. But Christ is not food for you in that way. He is uh, food for eternal life and your life with God. Uh, secondly, Christ is not received by our digestive system, but rather by faith. Um... And Christ speaks of that, such as in John 6, that we receive the bread of life by believing in him. Uh, Thirdly, we have this communion with his body and blood through the work of the Spirit. It is spiritual because it is accomplished by the Spirit of God. He is the one who, who binds us to Christ and who conveys what is Christ to us. So, despite the physical distance between you and Christ's body and blood in heaven, yet they are truly given to you uh, with these signs by the power of the Spirit who joins together that which is distant, making us lively living members of Christ's body, conveying to us all the benefits of his death. So, you have real and true communion uh, with Christ in this sacrament. Now, is Christ's body and blood present in the sacrament? How is his body and blood present in the sacrament? Uh, the Lutherans argued for the local presence of Christ's body in, with, and under the bread. They believed that his body could be en- anywhere on earth or everywhere on earth because it had been glorified and partook of some of the um, attributes of his divine nature so that his body could show up you know, here and in China and Australia and you know, all over the world. Uh, in the Lord's Supper, that it's in, with, and under that bread is there and his body is there in, in the actual elements. But people like Calvin argued that this strange notion of ubiquity, this doctrine about Christ's human nature, uh, blended Christ's human and divine natures and instead argued that it's the Spirit who unites us to Christ's flesh and blood. His flesh and blood remains a, a physical, certainly glorified, but still human body but it's the spirit that unites us to his flesh and blood and brings us life, spiritual life from them. So, notice this article speaks of how we feed upon Christ, and then in the first half, and then it says that the body and blood of Christ being then, not in one way, but yet as really, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. We can feed upon Christ because his flesh and blood, or his body and blood, is present to us in the sacrament. They're not corporally or carnally in with or under the wine, bread and wine. Rather, they are in heaven, where Christ sits at the Father's right hand with a true human nature, from which place he will come to judge the living and the dead. Go to Acts 1 or Acts 3, the whole doctrine of the ascension. Nevertheless, worthy partakers do feed upon Christ in the sacrament, since the body and blood of Christ are then as really, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Now, the phrase present to the faith of believers does not mean that your faith makes his body and blood present, like it brings it to mind and that's how it's present. It's speaking of something... Uh, more objective than that but that his body and blood is presented to your faith just as food is presented to your touch and taste and smell to your outward senses so Christ's body and blood are presented to your faith to be received by faith faith is the instrument by which you feed upon his body and blood just as your mouth is the instrument by which you feed on bread and wine and his body and blood are uh are to you like bread and wine. That These are symbols of his body and blood, not just because they are the same color, but because they have the same function uh, or or a a, a parallel function, that as these sustain you and revive you and sustain your physical life and even cheer you, so Christ's body uh, and blood, because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, they are spiritual food to you, that they give you eternal life and spiritual life that they revive you, that they cheer you, that you uh, have life in Christ. Any questions on on this article and our our feeding upon Christ? Let's see where we are. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read at least one of the two quotes I have here. Um, I'll go ahead and read from The French Confession of Faith, uh, which was one heavily influenced by, by Calvin, is another way of explaining this. It says, We confess that the Lord's Supper, which is the second sacrament, is a witness of the union we have with Christ, inasmuch as he not only died and rose again for us once, but also feeds and nourishes us truly with his flesh and blood, so that we may be one in him, and that our life may be in common. Although he be in heaven until he come to judge all the earth still we believe that by the secret and incomprehensible power of his spirit he feeds and strengthens us with the substance of his body and of his blood we hold that this is done spiritually not because we put imagination and fancy in the place of fact and truth but because the greatness of this mystery exceeds the measure of our senses and the laws of nature in short because it is heavenly it can only be apprehended by faith we believe, as it, is, as it has been said, that in the Lord's Supper as well as in baptism, God gives us really and in fact that which he there sets forth to us, and that consequently with these signs is given the true possession and enjoyment of that which they present to us. And thus all who bring a pure faith like a vessel to the sacred table of Christ receive truly that of which it is a sign for the body and blood of Jesus Christ give food and drink to the soul, no less than bread and wine nourish the body. Now, do all who partake of the Lord's Supper receive Christ unto eternal life? Yes or no? No, no, I see some shaking heads, but yes, uh, no. Uh, they, uh, not all who partake um, do feed upon Christ. This would be another contention between Calvinists and Lutherans because the Lutherans put the emphasis on the local presence that Christ's body and blood is in, with, and under the elements that, of course, then they would all be received into the mouths of uh, of everyone. Um, but because uh, the Bible, I would say, and obviously the Reformed doctrine would not argue for a local presence um, but rather a presence to your f- being presented to your faith to be received by faith, it's not received by those who don't partake in faith. Um, So let's go to the last article here. Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in this sacrament, yet they receive not the things signified thereby, but by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table, and cannot, without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. So, although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in the sign uh, elements in the sacrament, they don't receive the thing signified. By them. In fact, by their coming in an unworthy manner, they are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord to their own damnation. And so, if you go to the Westminster Larger Catechism, it spends a lot more time, several questions, on how to partake rightly of the Lord's Supper. Uh, The Shorter Catechism describes it in terms of examining oneself of of one's knowledge of Christ, faith in him, repentance, love, new obedience— that you might come uh, to, to partake of Christ by faith uh, and uh, resting and receiving upon him. Um, one argument for the fact that not all feed upon Christ in the supper is John 6. John 6 speaks of the things signified by the Lord's Supper, our feeding upon Christ. And it says that all who eat Christ will live forever. So, if all who feed upon Christ live forever, then those who don't live forever, who partake of the Lord's Supper, didn't feed upon Christ. Um, the, the thing signified here is, is salvation. Uh, it's something that's going to do you good. And so, if, it's, if you're eating and drinking to your own damnation, you're not receiving the thing signified, or, or the, the supper is not uh, benefiting you. Uh, you're not receiving good from it. So, John six fifty one. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, Christ's body, his, his flesh, is life-giving food. And so if you partake of it, it is to your good. Uh, if, if you partake of it, it will do you good. So if, if you're partaking of the Lord's Supper and it's not to your good, you're not partaking of of the thing signified. You are abusing the holy sacraments that are pointing to this thing and abusing them and not receiving the thing signified. And so it's sacrilege. And so it is a, a, uh, a thing that can bring down God's uh, correction, God's judgment. And so all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, are unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries, or be admitted thereunto. And so, there's both their own responsibility, that each person should examine oneself, and then also, to the extent it, that these things can be known, that the, the eldership of the church should, should not admit people who are wicked and ignorant, that uh, they should admit those who are fit to uh, partake in a worthy manner, uh, that they might do so to to their good. It doesn't mean that just because you've been admitted that necessarily you're going to partake in a worthy manner, but that is, is a guardrail, um, a fencing of the table, which we're going to get to actually in the next chapter on church censure. So we'll, we'll get into that a bit more here in a little bit. Any questions then on the Lord's Supper? It's kind of an unfortunate note to end on. Maybe it would be better. Better to end on the Article 7, the, the positive of, of the Lord's Supper, that it's intended for your good. It's not intended as, as a harmful thing. It is a way which Christ builds up believers, even weak and struggling and hesitating believers, that Christ has given His body and blood on the cross for your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, that though you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that he gives you eternal life freely to be received by faith. Uh, And these are tangible, sensible signs and seals of that glorious reality. All right, well, let's go ahead and and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your provision for us uh, in these things in your sacraments, both in baptism and the Lord's Supper, that we might see the things that you freely give to us by your word, that you give to us in your gospel, this communion with your son and therefore with you and the Holy Spirit, the life and salvation freely given to us sinners, that we might take better hold upon these things and grow in them for our faith to be strengthened We pray that you would use these sacraments to our edification, our growth and grace. You would guide us to the right use of them, uh, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.